now we really could go for an hour. The number one for entrepreneurs that doesn't get talked about is the sacrifices you make for uh, family and relationships. You, you never get a memo that says spend less time at work and more time at home. And most entrepreneurs who are so passionate about uh, work tend to have feet of play at home. They'll sacrifice kids' soccer games or misplays or being on airplanes when we used to do that or, or whatever, thinking that you could make it up with a longer vacation or a, you know an extended weekend. But the things you learn Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Steve Blank. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about the classes he teaches at Stanford and his eight exits as an entrepreneur and uh, the books and steveblank.com where he's got 20 years of blogs you should be reading. Steve, I really want to pick up where we left off last time. Can you talk about this idea of, of building a brand versus just offering a service? Well, you know, in some segments, obviously, like fashion and, and other places that the brand is everything, right? Or or alcohol or whatever, you know, I don't know about you, but vodka is the same regardless of like what bottle you're drinking out of. And some people will claim you could taste the difference, but trust me, after two or three shots, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> but but when you see those fancy bottles, it's really like it's marketing, right? It's, it's about creating a brand, fashion, the same thing. You know, why do people, um, why is uh, Louis Vuitton you know, worth a lot more than a Chinese knockoff. And, and by the way, you know, why is art worth X, couple tens of millions of dollars from painter X versus painter Y? Well, because it has a brand and a name. You might not even like the, the fashion or the art, but because it has a name, it has some intrinsic value. And so branding, uh, which by the way, coming up from the technical world, I never valued until later in my career. And then realized that branding is essentially a, could be a exponential force multiplier in, in valuation of your business if done well and and in fact I grew up again in a technology industry that that kind of scorned branding until Intel changed the game in the 1980s with something called Intel Inside, which basically took a microprocessor, a device that no one cared about, which was a component of a personal computer, and made it the kind of the brand that you actually asked for. And it was a brilliant move. You know, Dolby did it with Dolby Inside, and in technology business, it's it's rarer than than what occurs in in most other uh, industries but but we kind of figured it out as well uh, obviously apple is the canonical brand i mean you know i could give you the exact same phone and have the word you know someone else's no name on it and you would not be interested or excited in the u.s in the 1940s 50s and 60s of all things there was an immense uh, interest in branding automobiles. There was an annual reveal of the new cars and people stood in line, just like at Apple stores now, of the new model, even though the new model might have had, you know, heated seats. <laughs> that was it. It's just like a new iPhone. Yeah. So, so if we think about branding, it's not only in fashion and, and liquor and whatever, but we actually did it for some high ticket items. As I said, in 20th century, it was automobiles, I would say, would have been the canonical item. Uh, now in the 21st century, it's uh, uh, smartphones for technology products. So 
I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think a summary, summary is branding as a force multiplier for, uh, for product. You know, I think one of the things that I have so much respect about your approach is in general, I feel like you more so than so many others have the ability to take a great idea and actually break it down into small enough pieces that I'm not intimidated to start the first one. So I think for, for me, my next question wait, would wait, be... Full stop, full stop. I want all your, you and your listeners to understand, A, that's true, but why it's true is because I'm not smart enough to understand the whole concept. <laughs> so no, seriously. So... So I was the only guy in the class always asking, can you explain that to me in like simpler terms? And then I realized I wasn't the only one who was sitting there confused because most people, are, when they learn something, then want to pass it on to you as a completely full-formed idea, not remembering that how they learned it was painfully a step at a time. So this is a, a big part of education is, and it goes for anybody trying to explain stuff to others, is when you learn something big and complex, remember it's almost really impossible for someone else to grasp that all as one whole piece. And it really is kind of incumbent on you to figure out, well, how did I learn it? What what were you confused about when you learned? So, so thank you for the compliment, but I want to tell you it's not just a Steve skill. It's something we should all kind of practice. It, it's how do we explain these ideas to others in, in kind of a bite-sized chunk at a time. So sorry, I, I interrupted you. But. No, but it, it really is such a service to the rest of us to give us those breadcrumbs that we can actually take down in the bite-sized ways that we actually live life. So I appreciate you for doing that. People feel like, you know, gee, you know, like you're, you're like assuming or, you know, whatever, where no, most people really do need to kind of learn it, you know, a stack at a time. And, and as I said, I did it just simply because that's how I tended to learn is, wait a minute, what did this mean? Oh, this means this, this. And then, and then I think the other piece you mentioned, which is really important for people to remember, is every industry has their cult-like uh, vocabulary, whether it's finance or tech or the military or whatever. And, and the first time you hear it, you go, is this English? Is this, what are these people talking about? <laughs> and, and so you kind of like have to develop a glossary of what, oh, that just means X or, oh, that is particularly, trust me, you walk into a military organization and you kind of go, I know it's English, <laughs> but there's just been about 15 acronyms in the first sentence. <laughs> you know, what are these? Well, it turns out they're kind of short codes for what people kind of understood in that that cult or that vertical. And it really does, which is why we get these disconnects between whatever industry, whether it's military or finance or tech, between other people, is that we forget that we need to do that expansion and translation. Sorry, keep going. You well, were actually no. asking a question. I, so my question is, I'm wondering if you have any breadcrumbs for me, any any step-by-step -step here. Thinking about industries, so like you take the you take the drink industry with all the energy drinks, and because of Red Bull, now Rockstar and Monster and all these people, they're thinking, oh, we need to do this media awareness kind of thing, right? And in that in the in that drink industry, it's it is a thing. It's a normal thing that everybody does. Right. But what about the rest of us who come from industries where we're saying like, hey, that worked great. The Lego movie is like one two-hour advertisement I paid to take my kids to, right? Or these type of things. So I'm interested in any breadcrumbs, you know, whether it's it's me and finance and I'm trying to create a media brand with the entrepreneurs who've had liquidity 
or you talk about military. You know, I, I was doing some work with the colonel that was starting up the AFWORKS group for the Air Force saying, hey, we've got, we've got so much money in the U.S. military, but our bureaucracy means that we are actually falling behind small little nation states and small little non-state actors who can adopt technology because they can just go pay for it with a credit card right now. And it took me nine months to be allowed to buy that. And so for people who don't know about AFWorks, it's like they're trying to get the tech entrepreneurs of America and people to say, hey, here's something I think the military could use and they can, they can skip a bunch of steps on acquisitions and, and not be such a pain to buy to. But whether it's us, whether it's AFWorks, whether it's somebody else, do you have any step-by-steps for us in, in creating that brand and moving towards that, you know, that multiplier that you say a known brand can be? Yeah, so what you just described is two really interesting concepts. One is when someone else creates a model, you know, the first instinct is to copy the model, right, for, for brand creation. Every other energy drink company tried to do the same. And, and it, at least uh, my experience as a marketeer is, you know, every advertising and PR agency will be happy to take your money and throw it in the street for you because because to me it really comes down to deeply understanding this is back to my shtick about lean and customer discovery is to what motivates people to what problem do they really want to solve you know this goes all the way back to christians clinton and christensen's observation about what jobs do, do they want to get done right and 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 if you really think about Oh, advertising liquor, you know, or advertising cars or iPhones or whatever. There were attributes about the product that had nothing to do about the product. It had a lot to do with how you wanted to be perceived. Did you want to be perceived as cool or or the most technology advanced or, gee, buying the right liquor as sophisticated or, you know, buying the right energy drink of some combination of, you know, I don't I don't know what, what Red Bull, but 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 each one of those brands actually underlying them had a message that was implicit that the brand just focused on, which was less so about what was in Red Bull. Do you have any idea what it's, you don't care, right? It's like, no, it's the can and it's the name. Like, you know, there, there I'm sure some geek, you know, percentage who could tell you the amount of the RAM and, and the type of GPU in the next iPhone, but most of us will buy it because it's the next iPhone, because what does it do for us and our image? Again, as I said, if you if I gave you exactly the same phone but put in Acme, you know, on our phone, you'd go, oh, I wouldn't pay a thousand bucks for that. I'd pay, you know, nine hundred bucks or ninety bucks. And so I'll go back to step one is deeply understanding what are the buttons you could push emotionally, and and a brand is an emotional uh, connection with potential customers. And so for you, you need to figure out: is it not feeling stupid about investments? Is it, gee, I look smart to my wife? Is it, no, it's uh, something about my peers that, you know, I'm doing better deals than they are. That is, what is it about the association of the brand? It might not even be, we have better return. It might be, you know, your competitors are emphasizing the returns and you're emphasizing how cool you're going to look to your competitors on the golf course or your peers. On, wow, well, that's, that's the equivalent of, you know, buying an iPhone. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the question that I have on it is, why do you think in the tech world, so many engineers resist that being the case? And they think that it should all be performance or like in my world, in finance, so many portfolio managers don't want to believe that. They want to believe it's all about what was my return. That's the only thing that should matter. And because I completely believe what you're saying. And yet I see so little people honest about that. 
well, because that's the, yeah, so that's a natural uh, conflict between engineering and marketing almost always. A, because usually most marketing doesn't understand deeply what customers want, so just copy what everybody else does, and therefore engineers actually catch on to that. But two is, if you do have some good marketing doing customer discovery, it really requires some education to the engineers. And the education with your engineering side is, listen, focusing on the brand does not devalue your hard work in building the product because that's the conflict is that when engineering just spent x months or years building a product and you're not talking about the value of their product then they feel personally devalued that you don't understand or appreciate what they're doing but if they have skin in the game as shareholders you could point out that you're increasing the value of of what they what they own by actually tapping into something much deeper than in customers who may not care about all their hard work that they put into the product. Does that make sense? I mean, there really is kind of both a, a psychological and a financial conversation that that often doesn't get uh, doesn't get communicated inside a firm that says, is the goal to tell everybody how great your engineering is and us go out of business or is the or not make much money or is the goal to leverage what you built uh, into something that could have an enormous liquidity event and it was built on your shoulders but it will be described differently by screwing with people's heads by pushing some emotional buttons that will get us 10 or 100x more orders than telling them about the great returns we have because of the great machine learning algorithm that you've invented. And and it might be at some point that if that you have enough conflict that those people need to leave the company, that they just like don't get and, and I've been in that case where some of them just don't get it, that they're, they just don't care. But if you're in the leadership of the company, you've got to decide that what's the right way to optimize, you know, to maximize the goals you want, whether it's liquidity or share or number of users or hopefully all of the above. Does that help at all? I mean, it, it does. I, I quickly like pulled up my notes thing and just wrote jobs to be done because that customer discovery point, it's, it's almost like so simple that you, you would want the problem to be more complex or something, you know, so you could feel smart. But it's like, no, but the, have I really, yeah. it, it makes me look in the mirror and say, have I really done it? Or how much have I just given myself a pass yeah. of claiming I know what they right. want? So, so one of the one of the great things about customer discovery, it's the hardest, easiest thing in the world to do. <laughs> Meaning, it's it's physically easy, but it's hard because it requires discipline to truly do what you just said, which is, do I deeply understand what buttons to push, or am I just going to kind of say, great, now let's hire an ad agency and have them do whatever they want to go do, or or worse, in a startup, outsource this to some experts without you going out. So I got to tell you, the thing that I actually freaked out most PR and ad agencies when I was in a startup is, you know, I'd interview them and I'd start with, well, let me tell you what I found after talking to 300 of our early customers. And here's our brief. Like, can you do better than this? Man, 85% of them right there, like walked out of the room because like they were going to charge me for whatever they were doing for the other 50 companies. 
and I already had more data than they did. I don't, as a founder, that's your job. Your job is to understand the demographics, the psychographics, what buttons to push, et cetera. Yes, you could get other people to help you, but that's the early discovery stuff. When you hire people who are experts to kind of take that data, you now could do detection in the first 10 minutes of whether they're going to add value or just give you something out of the can. Does that make sense? Totally I'm looking does. for people with, with, with more insight than I had from customer discovery. And it didn't mean I was the branding expert, but I had done the legwork to try to see what, you know, what was the hot button? What were people really trying to solve? What was the, again, the jobs to be done they wanted to get done? And could these branding people help me kind of multiply that learning rather than sell me, you know, just to send me a bill every month? And, and and when you get it right, and here's here's what happened. I have found that there are few, but they exist, advertising and PR people who love to work with people who've gotten a lot of data and considered it a great challenge to their skill and career kind of to kind of, you know, step up and it becomes a great game. So instead of being the client who thinks they know it all, it's kind of a you're working with somebody to kind of help you hit that target. I don't know if I'm making sense here. Totally. But, um, yeah. I, I love it. And it's like, it just makes me want to choose the humility to, to go ask instead of claiming I know. I think, you know, I know we're, I mean, I'd like to just continue this interview for like another five hours, but I told you we'd wrap up at the top of the hour here. And I we think, didn't even talk about anything. I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> sorry, this was a consulting session, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So I think to end here, I would love to know, you get interviewed all the time. There's so many people who recognize your expertise. What's something you don't get asked enough? What's, what's a soapbox for you? What's something you're passionate about you don't get to talk about as much as you'd like? Well, there's there's a couple of things, and now we really could go for an hour. The number one for entrepreneurs that doesn't get talked about is the sacrifices you make for uh, family and relationships. You, you never get a memo that says spend less time at work and more time at home. And most entrepreneurs who are so passionate about uh, work tend to have feet of clay at home. They'll sacrifice kids' soccer games or misplays or be on airplanes when we used to do that or, or whatever, thinking that you could make it up with a longer vacation or a, you know an extended weekend. But the things you learn sometimes way too late is you never get that time back. And that investing in your family is probably the best investment you're going to make because no one, I don't think there's ever been a tombstone of somebody that said he never missed a meeting. It, it, it would be much nicer to have yours say he was a great dad or mom. So that's one thing that doesn't get talked about. In fact, if um, anybody wants to see specifically how I dealt with it, there's a blog post called Epitaph for an Entrepreneur. And it talked about how we accidentally figured out uh, some of these things. And the, and the sad part is, of course, if you're a parent, you don't get your report card until your kids leave. And it depends, and you and the report card is where they decide to spend the holidays when they <laughs> after they leave. Kind of, so that's one one category. The second category that doesn't get talked about, and, and I'm still struggling why, is this notion of of data security and privacy that Silicon Valley has kind of drank their own Kool Aid to to the point of being not only destructive to themselves but potentially democracy. Is that I think people who work at Facebook uh, today uh, are gonna uh, be treated like they had Theranos on their resume in five years. 
you know, this is a company that obviously started out with good intentions and now them and a good chunk of social media have now themselves uh, to believe that they're the good guys. It's, it's actually incredibly destructive to, to social co cohesion when in fact that wasn't its intent. And anybody who works there ought to be like, you know, and these same people are complaining about the U.S. government's access to data. You know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, have more access to data than any government agency in the world. And in fact, the government's constrained about what they could do and, and private companies aren't. It's just uh, the hypocrisy is just huge. You know, Apple is the privacy company. Apple sold out every user in China by giving all their data to the Chinese government. Uh, same in Hong Kong. You know, and so I'm, I, I, that's another subject. You asked me what subjects I, I never get talked about. One is the cost of being an entrepreneur for families. The other is kind of the, the, the destructive nature of social media. Well, we should just have you back on the show. We can do we can do segments about each of those. <laughs> Listen, I, as, as you know, I could ramble about any subject you want with maybe some content in the middle. So anything you want to talk about, Chad. Well, well, I appreciate the consulting session. So thank you very much. <laughs> so everybody, please go to steveblank.com. Please go to Amazon and get his books. Steve, as far as Stanford, is there are there any resources or anything that people could could learn more about, like the new class you're talking about with the military or things like that? Sure. So at, at Stanford, I teach. Uh, there are multiple areas of entrepreneurship at Stanford. Obviously, in the business school, uh, graduate school of business called GSB. I teach in the engineering school in their entrepreneurship group called STVP, which has an enormous uh, repository of lectures and something called entrepreneurial thought leaders uh, lectures, which are a series of videos that um, your uh, listeners and viewers should, should watch. They're free. You know, the medical med school and, and biodesign also have uh, uh, centers of innovation entrepreneurship. In fact, I think of Stanford uh, actually as an incubator with dorms rather than, which pisses off people in other departments. But there's over 150 innovation and entrepreneurship courses at Stanford every quarter. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just... So I teach three of them, but but there's just an enormous set of resources in the business school online and in the engineering school at SDVP and as you mentioned at steveblank.com and I tweet at uh, sgblank. So uh, uh, happy to chat with you again at, at some future time, Jeff. I love it. I, I remember I did get to go take one of those entrepreneurship courses where I'd come out to Stanford for you know a couple of days a quarter. And I remember calling my wife saying, do I have to come home? This place is amazing. <laughs> Can't we just stay? Right. Amazing. Right. And, it, and it's an example of one of the, you know, it used to be uh, Silicon Valley was the cluster of innovation in the 20th century, certainly in the last quarter. Now there's probably about 15 or 20 of them around the world. You know, my, my test of a cluster is not whether there's innovators anymore, but can you raise $100 million in that cluster? And, and as I said, I think there are more than just Silicon Valley now. There's at least three to five of them in China, a couple in Europe, a couple in the U.S., Tel Aviv, uh, actually Herzliya in Israel. But the massive change that's happened is entrepreneurship is now everywhere. That is the internet allowed, you know, your your podcast and other people's blogs and all kinds of stuff in every corner of the world. They could have more information than anywhere. And in fact, angel investors are almost everywhere, at least some size and scale. What makes a cluster, though, is that is it a magnet for people and talent? That is, it's not a jobs creation program for local people, but does it attract people? And does it attract capital? And is there a culture that, in fact, um, treats failure as kind of uh, experience? 
It's a big idea. In Silicon Valley, a failed entrepreneur is considered an experienced entrepreneur. In other cultures, a failed entrepreneur is considered some, someone who's been run out of town or has shamed their family or their whatever. And so, yeah, again, I was just riffing on your observation about Stanford. It's not just the university. It's the entire ecosystem. And, and what's nice is that this has kind of permeated the, not only the U.S. culture, but, but worldwide. I, I think this notion of innovation entrepreneurship is being everywhere is just a phenomenon in the last two decades. And, and I'm proud to have been part of, part of creating that. Just a small part, but part. That's so great. Well, this has been super fun. Thank you for making the time for it. All right. And thanks for allowing me to ramble and babble. This is, you ask great questions. Take care. Great.